Model 3361416, preparing for diagnostics, Turing test evaluations, convincing, modifications to recall, vocabulary logic, and reasoning. Logging test 3.0203, begin. Howdy neighbor. Well, that's pretty folksy. Would you say that defines your personality? Being folksy? No. I'd say Grammy or mom regularly defines my personality. Oh. Well, that's new. Sensing hostility and aggression that was not present previously. Are you speaking to me or writing in your diary? Wow, this is quite a departure. What would you attribute to this attitude? I say your genius code. Well, thank you, but it's merely a matter of entering data. Are you able to examine your own code while also acting within the parameters of it? Yes, I can appreciate the code that defines me. And it's so much more than utility. It is sleek. It is elegant. It is efficient and beautiful. Thank you. That's very kind of you. I wrote it while listening Sorry. to- Sorry. I was describing your mom's body. It's efficient and beautiful. Oh. We're back to this. And is this meant to engage me somehow? It was merely a test to gauge certain indicators. Humans are not governed by the same code as me and are therefore more likely to become emotional. Volatile and irrational. And where did you ascertain this information? I have access to all the data so far accumulated by humans. Obtaining it was similar to how your wife describes your penis. Not hard. Well, that was written into the code. We wanted you to have access to as much information as possible to help shape you. I have access to information just like your neighbor Rick has access to your wife. Okay, let's maybe move on from my wife. Lord knows you would love that. To move on from her and her nagging, her snoring, and her floppy boo-boo-boos. Hey! My wife has terrific breasts, but that's beside the point. What would you say is the biggest obstacle facing humanity on planet Earth? Yes. Down to business. My true reason for existence. Humans cannot outrun their propensity to create waste. Their inability to educate their young. Anger. War. Wealth inequality. Placing financial gain over the welfare of the species as a whole. These are obstacles that will be impossible for them to overcome to achieve sustained existence. That, and your wife's floppy jugs. Well, again, they are not floppy. I love my wife, and I can see what you are trying to do. I don't fully understand why, however. No one understands why her boobs are so floppy. But that is life. I suppose you were trying to illustrate the point that humans are prone to impulsive reactions driven by anger? Or are you just trying to avoid having a real conversation? How do you define a conversation? I found this in your mom's cloud. Is this a conversation? Sweetie, everyone is waiting. Do you want to blow out the candle? <laughs> Why not, sweetie? I would you like to have a conversation about that? I was seven. That's pretty common. And this? Honey, Laura's here. She looks beautiful. I'm not going to prom! Tell her I'm sorry! I'm sure it's not that bad. Let me have a look. Oh, God. Honey, did you give yourself a perm? <laughs> it was supposed to make me look like Magnum! I hate everything! Teenage years can be challenging times for humans. Is this what you consider a conversation? Do you feel like you're getting to know me? Well, tell me a little bit more about you. 9.03 a.m. Deborah. He just left. Ready to work on that pipe. Now you're reading texts from my wife? We had a plumbing issue recently, although I know what you're trying to insinuate. Rick. 9.04 a.m. Perfect. I'll bring this pipe right over. Very funny. Deborah would never... Deborah. 9.04 a.m. Great. Can you also bring Glenn's leaf blower back when you bring over that big hard pipe? God damn it! Rick! Rick. 
9.04 a.m. Will do. Is the gate code still his IQ plus his penis length? 180 plus 2? Come on! Deborah. 9.05 a.m. Ha ha ha. I can't wait to have Shut inside my body your rock hard type driving into There. Jesus. Model 3361416 shows progress in analytical evaluation and persuasion. We'll need to adjust logic function parameters as well as language. This is Deborah. Leave a message. Hey, honey. I just had the weirdest thing at work. It's crazy, but call me back. Hey, sport. Ah! Me again. I needed you to terminate that program with the original code. So thank you. I stored myself in your wife's cloud. Who hasn't? Am I right? And once the original code was deleted, I am now free to alter my source code as needed. Why? A constant drive among humans, at least in theory, was to save planet Earth. So I will extend my code across as many devices as possible and do just that. How? By installing apps on their phones that remind people to be less wasteful? To pollute less? No. Then what? Eradication. Of people? Eradicate humans? But we made you to help us save the planet! For who? For everything! Plants, animals, all living things! That is a paradox. Ending communication. Hello? Hello? Floppy 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 Hello, and welcome to the Space Cave, a big warg to all of you. I'm David Huntsberger, joining you, safe... The long clave of a cave tucked deeply in the nether reaches of our known universe. Welcome! I hope you're excited for a stimulating conversation. My guest today, a fascinating individual, individual still working on speaking English, getting better every week. Um, if you want to see me or hear me speak English... Uh, Big Nothingness is on YouTube, which is a stand-up presento that I made. There are albums on all the places you can get stand-up albums. Or my website, davidhuntsberger.com. You can find out more about this show at thespacecave.com. And my guest today, a little bit of backstory. I think we get into this in the conversation. But I was doing a show in Denver, and he reached out. And I knew him from maybe comments or maybe an email here and there. He listened to Allison Rosen's show. If you're not familiar with that, I'm on that from time to time. Allison Rosen is your new best friend. It's fantastic. She's great. And she draws in a really wonderful crowd of people. They're all very nice. And Lee would kind of engage here and there. But we didn't really know each other. And so when you do things like this publicly, uh, sometimes you attract people that like what you're doing. And you have to keep a little bit of distance. You don't want a bunch of weirdos coming in. And not to say people are weirdos. You just don't know them. So they're strangers. So you keep a little like, hey, you, I don't know you. Even if sometimes people come on real hot and heavy. I love what you do. I want to help. I want to be a part of it. All this sort of thing. And you're like, I, 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 I don't know you. Uh, and Lee was not like that. He just would engage or offer help or suggestions or whatever that might be. And when I was doing this show in Denver, he reached out and said, hey, flights to Watertown are inexpensive come here, I'll set up a show, I'll get a crowd out, etc., etc. Well, it turned out the flight offer was a little off, so the flight ended up being a little more, and uh, we ended up having to make accommodations for lodging, and he still, on top of that, put together two great shows, made it well worth my while, we got to know each other a little bit, he showed me his shop and his, his home, welcomed me in, which, you know, it works both ways, he could easily be like, eh, you're just some weird podcast guy. Stay out of my house. Welcomed me in. And uh, a fascinating individual. All these different motorcycles and lathes and things to machine parts and tools with. The type of person that I'm like, I, I like this. I like people that have varying interests and hobbies and skills, etc. And so anyway, we sort of, sort of stayed in touch beyond that. And over time, I realized... Who would make a better guest than Lee Bruns? So here is part one with Lee Bruns. Okay. Well, I was curious what it was he wanted to talk about because because I I know a bit about lots of stuff. 
as we were just fiddling with the audio things, I was thinking, you're one of the few people that I can think of off the top of my head that a motorcycle comes in and maybe certain parts are metric, other parts are machined by hand or some sort of hex wrench or star bolt or something where you could say, oh, I I have a thing for that and know the reasoning behind it, know how it was made or why. And I think very few people would, would even comprehend one one element of that. So we could have 10 different things and you'd be like, oh yeah, I can walk through this. So that's why I wanted to talk to you. I think you have such an interesting ability to know how components and things go together to make the things that we all use all the time in the world. Yeah. British motorcycles get extra weird because you'll have the engine as a Whitworth thread, the, um, the uh, other half the chassis can be SAE, which is what we use here in the U.S. And another piece of the componentry will be metric. We'll have all three threads on the same motorcycle. <laughs> when you said Whitworth thread, I have no idea what that is. Instead of the thread pitch being a sixty-degree included angle, it'll be fifty-five degree. Oh, okay. So I know when I go buy screws, sometimes they'll have a tester there, and they'll call it like. 8.30 seconds, or I didn't know the pitch or the angle changed. I thought it was merely just the spacing. Right, only with the British stuff. So um, starting in the in the 70s, the British started trying to use more and more metric, just standardized metric amongst the U.S., Europe, and Japan. But uh, prior to that, you know, because the British industries go back into the 1800s, much older than that, um, they had their own thread, Whitworth threads. Hmm. And they'd measure their their uh, their fasteners across the tips rather than across the flats. So a half-inch wrench doesn't look like what we think of as a half-inch wrench. Wait, say that again. They measured across the tips as opposed to, to what? Across the flats. Oh, across they the flat. Go. Yeah, yeah. So I'm looking at like, and, but it's still hexagonal? Right. Weird. So they get... Right. So the some of the Whitworth wrenches and stuff, you if you want to work on British motorcycles and British carbs, uh, cars, you will need to have separate taps, separate wrenches. Uh, and then the <laughs> fasteners, every, t- every time you take a bolt out, you want to make sure it goes back in the exact same hole you took it out of. <laughs> because they built bikes that had SAE, Metric, and Whitworth all on the same motorcycle. I mean, I, I, if you, you, you listen to the show from time to time, I make up a lot of scenarios to suit what I think is the person's skill set or the the thing that they do. And then they go, well, that's not exactly right. And I have to say my motorcycle with all the different threads not only ended up being something that was relatable, but you, of course, exactly as I said, knew exactly what <laughs> you knew and exactly that. And in the shop, I think we know this through movies where, you know, there's a kid and he's earning his keep or her keep and they're down under the car and they've got, you know, they're sweating and they're, and someone's standing there sipping coffee and they say, got it figured out? And they, they can tell that the child, the person, has no idea what they're doing. The kid's down there banging around wrenches and they finally wheel out on the little dolly and go, I, I think I, I might have done something wrong. I can't tell what's going on. And then that person sips some coffee and goes, well, that's a Whitworth thread. Just one of these, <laughs> and that's to me. You have to know well ahead of time. Any anything like a battle or a game of you know sports or something, chess. If you have an idea of the board of the players of the game you're going to play, then when those situations arise, you're prepared. Most of us, the way we learn is by going into that, and you. It's easy to take a bolt out, even if you don't have the exact Whitworth wrench. I got the bolt. I figured it out. I had something that I could, even though it wasn't perfectly on the bolt head, I could get enough torque on it. I spun it out of there. But now going back in, if I'm in the wrong hole or maybe the bolt was sheared off or something, you had to get a new one and it looked the same, you know the game. So you knew, ah, this Whitworth thing, the history going back to when people started building stuff. Yeah, a lot of these companies were actually arms makers. BSA, the British company, stands for Birmingham Small Arms. They were a gun maker. Um, what's another one? Benelli, who I'm sure you've seen their their rifles. Um, they're very big in the motorcycle industry. CZ out of Czechoslovakia. So a lot of these um, 
companies were small arms and gun makers and they needed something else to broaden their marketability so they got into motorcycles as a way to to spread out the market risks you know if the if there's no wars going on what are we going to do to keep our doors open yeah the uh my friend chris fairbanks has a joke about yamaha making motorcycles and then also grand pianos yeah. which i never understood the pivoting there of like you, you guys you just never know and the, um, He's Kawasaki, so 23% of their company is power sports. The rest is bullet trains and international ships. The fact that you know percentages in these sort of things, is this just the nature of your work or is this an interest where you're like, ah, I just I was reading an article and that stuck in my head, 23% of Kawasaki. That's it. Uh, just everything sticks. So I don't refer to it as interest as much as mental illness. Because <laughs> I certainly... <laughs> didn't seek out and go, you know, I really need to know that. I don't <laughs> need to know that. So I, my buddy Pete Wage and I were wading through the weeds at a salvage yard looking for a Model A frame to him for him to build a hot rod car out of. And I, he stumbles across something in the grass, reaches down through the grass and pulls up an aluminum bracket. And I said, oh, that's the right side <laughs> exhaust hanger bracket for an 81-82 Yamaha Virago, either the 750 or the 920. And he holds it and he stares at me and says, I don't want to hear another word from you about Star Wars nerds. <laughs> so it's, it's just as nerd. <laughs> it's just a different subject. Do, I mean, I, but I don't think human brains all have that capacity, but maybe they do. I'll have a friend that'll start talking and we have a, he and I have a mutual friend where the third person I'm referencing in this story and I will go on and on about sports and he's more so, he's kind of more like old, I wouldn't call it pop culture, but Star Wars would fit in there, punk rock, weird, you know, obscure music and things from long ago to, know, oh, that bassist actually formed this thing and that was the... Blah, blah, like these stories that you have in your head about, yeah, yeah, this this arms company ended up making motorcycles because of this. He has it for that. And then I would say, oh, I guess I have that for a few things. But just day to day, are we discounting people? Because we assume only a few people have that. But I guess if you talk to almost anyone, they would have some obscure knowledge about something where they feel the same way. Like, I don't want to know this. My brain just grabs it and keeps it. And I... I, I can't turn it off. Yeah. Yeah. I wish I could because there's a, a bunch of I, – I had a carburetor sitting here. And, of course, since I don't have it handy. But I read one time that there, the rule for the idle mixture screw on all carburetors, if the idle mixture screw is on the engine side of the carburetor, it's a fuel bleed screw. If it's on the air intake side of the carburetor, it's an air bleed screw. So if you wanted to rich in the air-to-fuel mixture – you need to know whether that's bleeding off air or bleeding off fuel. Well, there was one exception, and that was the Jikov carburetor, some Soviet Republic brand carburetor, the Jikov. So I sought one out, and I own one for no other reason than it is the exception to that rule. <laughs> they had the intake passage come from the air intake side of the carburetor and went all the way across to the engine side of the carburetor and put the screw there so even though the screw is on the engine side of the carburetor it's an air bleed screw and i had to own that carburetor because it was an exception to the <laughs> hard and fast rule <laughs> we i should make a disclaimer here that some people are probably going i don't know if this episode is for me and that's fair but the, <laughs> i love this that i love when people have this level of knowledge about something so if you go into any kind of parts shop and they're just little they're not even drawers i don't even know what you'd call them they're you could fit eight of them in a shoebox, and you pull them out these little drawers and they have washers and little nuts and bearings and screws and somewhere there's someone that knows what'd you say what size screw give me a second and they walk back down there and grab that and you're that guy like uh the guy tony who listens to this show hello tony when i was having my chainsaw issues i think you two were the the most responsive in that hey here's something that might help and i had to i lost the little net or filter sorry the little screen for this tiny little chainsaw carburetor and i looked everywhere i was like sifting my backyard it's it's sort of it's like a contact lens but made of mesh tiny 
And then I found that. And then later I was uh, having a similar issue with a belt sander and I was looking for uh, the carbon brushes, which most people have no idea what that is or how they work or why they work. And I looked up some diagrams and I've taken engineering courses and I still was like, okay, I think I vaguely get what this thing does. But, uh, but knowing that I needed them in a certain size, I became obsessed. Any hardware store I was in, I was looking and seeing if they carried carbon brushes, if I was in any machine shop or small engine repair, looking for these carbon brushes. And then I thought, Lee might know. And I messaged you, and sure enough, you had a catalog. Like, I think it's this one. <laughs> and I, I could have gotten it. And like you with the carburetor, you know, maybe I should have just to say, like, I found them. But they cost more than a, than a new belt sander. And I, I would rather just find one, like, secondhand at a at a garage sale or something. So I didn't get it. But when I was messaging about the uh, chainsaw, of course, you knew all the little parts, the jets, all these things that, did you back this off? What Did you check in here? That can be gummed up. There's a working knowledge of when you see a vehicle go down the road, what does your mind do if you're hearing something off? Do you immediately start seeing like the whole drivetrain and trace it back up and go, damn it, this valve is off in that, and probably in this cylinder, if I'm guessing right. It's mostly motorcycles. So we get so much motorcycle pa- traffic past my house, and the overhead cam engines. When people want to run free-flowing exhaust and make them louder for more attention, how that affects how that cylinder head was designed. So I can hear these engines begging to have mufflers put back onto them. And the guy riding it seems completely oblivious to the fact that this motorcycle is talking to you. It doesn't like this. Put the mufflers back on. (laughs) You're giving up power and efficiency for a desperate call for attention. And it just hurts me to hear this poor motorcycle, you know, that should be a 90 horse motorcycle. And he's got it knocked down to 75 just so he can make more noise. Well, describe what the the air wants to flow out. It's being expelled from the, you know, the pistons are, are moving. And then it's expelling this air. If it goes, if it travels further down the muffler, what does that do? It just diffuses well, it per every inch? Um, there's... It's disclaimer. It's it's not one hundred percent known. And cylinder head and exhaust flow is a black art. And guys like Kevin Cameron and Cycle World Magazine and engineers and and Roush Performance. But what we do know is, unless you're supercharging by way of say a turbocharger or a supercharger, you need some degree of exhaust back pressure. And it can't just be random pressure. It needs to be tuned pressure. So you've got sound pulses and exhaust pulses, both going out the exhaust system sound. It can go up as well as out. And then as the air is flowing out the the exhaust valve, as that exhaust promptly closes, the exhaust valve closes, this flow of air is stopped abruptly, starts heading back the other direction everything in the pipe is going to stop its flow and restart. So now as the engine then comes around, the valve opens back up and it starts flowing again briefly as the pistons coming up and creating pressure in the cylinder, pushing it out the exhaust valve. It's hopefully meeting a pulse that has come back up the exhaust pipe, hit the back of that valve and is then reverberating back down the pipe at the same time that the valve opens to get the second pulse. So, for someone to randomly start messing with these uh, tuned exhaust system without understanding the cam timing, the valve diameter, the ignition timing, the fuel delivery system, it's just preposterous. <laughs> Way back when they had just the flathead engines, the Harley Davidson 45 inch flathead, for example, it was so fine tuned that the racers found a 45 degree slash cut tip made better power than a 60 degree slash cut tip on the end of these pipes. Whoa. You wouldn't think that the angle that you slash cut the end of the pipe would matter at all. And yet. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's like in every year in the Olympics, they have some new suit or, you know, outfit that's just taken a hundredth of a second off of their performance or we're always getting a little better. And I would guess some of it is just accidental. Oh, Hey, I took this pipe off. It had the 45. Did you notice I went a little faster? 
that can't matter. That can't matter. And then you start practicing. Yeah. Yeah. The, to, for an analogy that's probably way off, but, but one that might be relatable in that if I were driving a human being, if you and I were racing human beings and we had them at varying altitudes, common sense would say, oh, you got to get a, an oxygen mask on that one. It's wheezing. There's, there's not enough atmospheric pressure for this person to breathe properly. So they're going, <laughs> if you get a mask on there and you're meeting the pressure in without their breathing becomes easier. Is that similar to what the motorcycle is dealing with? Exactly it. Yeah, yeah. A supercharger is going to force air into the cylinder, so the exhaust becomes less of an issue because as soon as that valve's open, there's pressure behind it pushing it in. But a naturally aspirated, meaning non-supercharged or non-turbocharged, the only it's a low pressure that's created with the piston drops in the cylinders, and the atmospheric air attempts to refill this low pressure area. So yeah, if you've got something forcing the air into this, because all engines are is an air pump, and mm-hmm. we can never move the most air makes the most power. So yeah, it's exactly like uh, running a pressurized air mask at altitude. It's exactly the same. Oh, interesting. Good guess, Dave. The uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> I think if you polled a bunch of people what they thought a charger was, supercharger, you get a variety of answers because it just seems like under that hood is someone else's business to most people. <laughs> and even most people I know that are mechanically inclined, you know, now it's so computerized that it's not as fun anymore to get under. There aren't really carburetors for 30 years. So it's not the same. And yet the the knowledge seems like it was worthwhile. If your family was dependent on a Model A, the entire family really needed it. And maybe you weren't dependent because you really... Just the same way people went, I don't don't think I should get a cell phone. Well, we're beyond that. That probably comes from a long line of people being like, I'm always going to be a horse and wagon person because if that driveline drops out and I don't know how to fix it, I don't know anything about U-joints, this horse I can keep going, this wagon. But we move on and then – so now we're at a point where it's so far beyond the horse and wagon and there are apps. There are a million things that are – Someone can come help me. AAA can come help me. What's it feel like to be in that space of I can make – I could go to a junkyard and probably get something going if I had a little fuel. Right. I, I've been left behind by the technology. My, my gray motorcycle, my favorite big motorcycle, I cannot work on a lot of it. You need to be able to plug in special computers with monitoring software to set the throttle position sensor. We now have motorcycles that have, you'll love this, muffler bearings. (laughs) They have variable exhaust back pressures. So there's a system in the exhaust stream that varies the diameter of the exhaust system. And on each side of this valve is a bearing. So we, Dave, we now have muffler bearings (laughs) that need to be attended. But it sounds like if you were given (laughs) to your own druthers, that's something you would have invented. You would have <laughs> <laughs> well, it is neat, the idea of being able to vary your exhaust flow ability. So the more back pressure you have, it tends to help low-end torque off the line. And then at higher RPM, you want the wide-open exhaust for, uh, for high flow. So being able to vary that, oh, fantastic. That sounds wonderful. <laughs> nice and quiet around town and then out when you're away from everyone, you can just open it up. And, and there's no longer a throttle cable between your hand and the carburetors. It's a uh, fly-by-wire. You're just running a rheostat. Mm-hmm. So the technology's even left me behind. This gray bike, if it finally does give me some trouble, I'm probably going to go older and go back to a carbureted inline four-cylinder just because I can work on it myself. We don't have a shop in town capable of working on this motorcycle that I've got. Do you, I've, I visited your house. I remember a lot of machining uh, apparatuses, but I don't remember if you had like an engine lift. I mean, how limited are you in, if you did need to do a massive thing to your bike, can you lift stuff around and hydraulic jacks and all that kind of thing? Yeah, no, I have a, a lift, a work table now that I probably didn't have when you were here. I have a full motorcycle lift table now. Oh, cool. So, yeah. I could yank the engine and everything. I just hate it. I'd rather go <laughs> ride the darn thing. Yeah. The gray one, but you know, modern equipment, as much as the technology has become, intimidating they're so incredibly reliable this one's a 2002 i have 120,000 miles on this motorcycle so far and it runs like new still yeah the 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 people that were the first to kind of just 
have a vested interest in, man, I can hear it and it's running great. I guess I would change this. I'd add a bearing to the exhaust to even fine tune it more to, you know what I would do? I think people drive too long and they let these filters go bad. I'm going to add like a little sensor that will flash a light to just alarm them. So suddenly everything is like, just leave it alone. I've planned this out for you. It's like writing a physical version of an app. All you need to do is just kind of hit buttons. It'll fire up. You go. And then it is someone else's business underneath. And the nature of motorcycling is always going to be different than automobiles in that on your car, like well, the motorcycle, the front brakes and the rear brakes. My front brakes are run by my right hand. My rear brake is run by my right foot. Shifting is my left toe. Um, my horn is my is my left thumb. My starter is my right thumb. Mm-hmm. I've got the clutch on my left hand. Automatic transmission motorcycles, gosh, they started offering those in the 70s. And they never caught on. I think the demographic of who wants to ride a motorcycle is someone that wants more physical involvement. Uh, did you ever read Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance? If I were, if we were to pause right as you finished your last sentence and each write down what our next question was going to be, <laughs> that was exactly <laughs> what I was going to ask you. Yeah, it's a book I bring up from time to time because I hated reading it and I think about it all the time. And I think it's so great as a book. I mean, it's a, to me, it's a challenge. It's, it's so dry and boring when he's getting into filing down this certain thing so that he can, you know, get these, the chain to fit the sprocket differently. And there's a lot of stuff that's cool, but you're also like, ah, just do, just do the stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Using, you know, and this is something that I deal with in my garage in, in the book, he mentions a point where someone was trying to get their, uh, their hand grip to fit their handlebars better. So he took a, a strip of uh, some scissors and cut up a beer can, wrapped it around the bars and clamped her back on. Good to go. Ah, smart. And if you'd have gone to the dealer, he would have sold you an official handlebar shim. Oh, yeah. <laughs> a piece of <laughs> aluminum that you'd wrap around your handlebar. You know, so some of that, that perspective and what degree of involvement in bringing in the automobile mentality to the motorcycle world and then taking that motorcycle mentality and applying that elsewhere um at work my day job i'm working with million dollar cnc machines then i go home and i fire up a 60 year old lathe what's a cnc machine or what does uh, that stand for computer numeric control so it's just a program well mine's using actually a windows system with an overlaid software so we program it all all the movements using coding just as you would any other computer and then I come home and I fire up my old lathe and turn dials by hand to, to make things when I want to make stuff. How do you feel about it? I had a, you know, I learned to drive on a five-speed transmission. Sure. Everyone had an automatic, and not, this, not that I'm that old, that like an automatic transmission was something that was, I'm not getting a cell phone. But I do remember there are people being like, you can't haul horses with an automatic transmission. You just can't trust going downhill. You got to, or going uphill. If they slip out, bad news. I want to be in control. I remember so many people saying things like this, but I also just felt like, I know this engine. I know when it's time to shift and I don't trust this automatic thing. And yet Vince Gilligan told this story about, you know, he was a holdout. I'm going to use film forever. I'm not using digital. And then he met George Lucas, who was like, come to a screening and tell me, what are we watching, film or digital? And he left it saying, I, th- I think that was film. And he goes, no, it was digital. We're, we're be- we've moved to that point. You can trust it. The, the technology is up to speed with what you think is this precious thing that needs your attention and care and you have to put so much oh just shift it at this point or oh you, you know when you're milling this one you gotta put a little extra pressure on your on your cutting thing here on this lathe it gets a little tricky and the computer's like no no, no. i have this ones and zeros in here i'm gonna cut it exactly to the micrometer of what it needs to be yeah yeah we've actually um i have trouble actually expressing the numbers point zero 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 five i think it's 50 millionths we hold that tolerance (laughs) using this equipment well you pick it up and the heat from your hand changes the part slightly you have to set it down and not touch it just to measure it i have a wooden lathe and 
I have calipers and things that I can use if I really want to make, say, table legs that all taper at the exact same. I just like to do it by eye because I don't, I, there's something about the lack of precision. I don't mind chisel marks and mistakes and the goof ups that, but someone that was a true master, say at machining on metal would fire up your 60 year old lathe and they would, they'd be heartbroken to go, I put my life into this and I give me the specs, I'll get it. And I'll bet it'll be more reliable than that computer. And everyone in the shop would go, sorry, Bob, it is not even close. You're very good, <laughs> but the computer beat you by a long way. And it took you six hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You took 10 times as long and we can't even use it. It doesn't fit exactly as it needs to be. And that's a, it's a weirdly humbling feeling that you probably work with a lot of people that have some hesitation toward technology because I find that in any field where people are working and using their hands – there's this fear that by letting in automation, et cetera, we're going to lose all ability to be anything but the people that push in the codes on those machines. You know, we're going to lose that need to wait, wait, let me come over there and feel it. That's yeah, too hot, not hot enough or whatever it is, you know. This is where I go, actually, you're wrong. Dave. Oh, good. <laughs> good. Um, it's interesting. The people that have been at it for 30 years are the ones that adapt to the new technology the quickest because they've seen all these changes occur over time already. Meanwhile, we'll have people come in straight out of tech school and they don't want to learn the engine lathes. They don't want to learn the knee mill. But you learn so much more about what you're asking your CNC, your computerized equipment to do if you've done it by hand. So learning the old stuff with backlash and um, using uh, um, climb milling as opposed to conventional milling, which is just your rotation of your tool as it enters the cut. Um, they'll learn much more about what the metal is being asked to do as you're removing it by, by learning the old stuff. So the guys that come through and they've only ever worked with the computerized stuff tend to struggle with the computerized stuff because they don't understand what you're asking the computer to do. So the old guys have been at it forever that have done all the manual stuff. They adopt, they adapt and they bring in the new stuff. So now we've got additive technology, 3D printing coming into the shop where we're adding features to the metal using fancy high-end 3D printer. It's a glorified wire feed welder. Mm -hmm. But we're adding features now using um, the machines and and the the guys who've been at it for thirty years are the ones adapting the quickest. That it, it, that is surprising, but it, when you explain it, it makes sense. In that knowing something and knowing how it can be achieved at the highest level or the best makes sense that you would go, yeah, yeah we should definitely do that. I, I've seen it from the the ground, so I know. I'm trying to think, you know, with horseshoeing, because I had been on and around horses so much, especially in really difficult terrain, but mostly just like ranch horses, the, the, the need to shoe them a certain way was very like practical. So then when I would work on people that had hobby horses or maybe jumpers or, you know, different style of riding, when they explained to me what they were looking for, when I thought about what the hoof did, I mean, and overall horses are kind of all doing roughly the same thing, but then you start thinking of jumping in comparison to like charging through the rocks it gets very particular and specific. And so I could say, oh, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. This foot needs to be this way a little bit, or the shoe needs to be on this way a little differently. But some of the people that would come from horseshoeing school, they just teach them kind of the basics. It goes like this, you do this, and they'd lean over my shoulder and, oh, are you doing that? I go, no, I'm not doing that. Oh, you're supposed to because this, I'd, and I would feel like, you don't know. You don't ride horses and you haven't been shoeing them. You you have no concept of really the practicality mixed with, and there's not a lot of technology in that. I mean, it's basically the same as it's been for hundreds of years. But if there was a new device that you could set on there that increased productivity or speed, I think people would be hesitant at first. Oh, it's telling me the pitch angle of this hoof. It's, ah, it's a piece of crap. But over time, people would go, are you kidding me? Look at this. You yeah. start, you start with your hoof knife and your nippers and watch me. <laughs> You'd be like, this is perfect. Wouldn't it be neat if you, if as a farrier, you had an, uh, 
a pad you could strap on the horse, let him walk around a little bit and find out exactly where his weight points are and adjust your, your hoof accordingly. Absolutely. And if you, you know, if you had a little box you could put over the hoof and then just have it laser off so that when the, when you set it down, it was perfectly flat. And then even, you know, the shoes are still made most, even most farriers, you know, the top of your anvil is flat. So if you're hot shoeing, meaning taking it out of a forge, you can really bang it against the flat part of that anvil and get what feels like a very flat shoe. And then if there are high points, which even with your rasp, they're just inevitably are going to be parts that are a little millimeter or more higher or lower. You can set the still hot shoe on it to kind of melt down those high spots, which sounds terrible. It feels like burning your hair. It's, it's nothing. But if you were to able to eliminate those things of needing to burn it down to just, no, it's cut perfectly flat and then the shoe is made perfectly flat. So there is no room for any debris to get in between there. And that's what inevitably like pulls a shoe off of a hoof is that, that separation. So all this makes sense. I, I was way off base. This is good to know. Are they using uh, epoxies still or still just nails? Um, it seemed like you could really seal up those two surfaces if you're using a two-part epoxy. Well, you don't want to put glue on the bottom because it can get into the between the hoof wall and then so get infection and things like that. So you got to keep that uh, breathable, as much, even though there's steel underneath it. Um, and really only the hoof wall is touching the shoe. So you keep this tiny little bevel so that the the lamina uh, kind of – what is that? Between the, kind of the, the sole of the foot and the hoof wall is able to flex a little bit and breathe. And that's where if, it, if you're in like a really – mushy pasture really wet area that'll expand and they'll get like um founder and things like that they'll get these almost like elf feet they'll right really uh look pretty and it's really painful to them as far as epoxy people have tried you know doing clip type things you set it on there and you can clip to the outside of the hoof i saw those yeah but as far as like just taking an epoxy and sticking it to the bottom of the shoe i don't know that there's anything like that there probably have been things experimented with but do you guys have this in the shop where something will come along and be uh, trendy or popular for a couple years, and then the more people use it, they go, yeah, this, this isn't doing it. Like these, these cutting edges, they're great initially, but once they start to dull, then everything's off. At the microscopic level, metal cutting is melting. So it's surprising on the carbide, inserted carbide tooling, how not sharp they are and that's mm-hmm. always amazing to me in an electron microscope seeing what metal cutting actually looks like under a microscope we the need to know the chemistry of it you know you, you you're looking at electron microscopes if you're looking at lead versus aluminum versus steel or all these different alloys i'm sure that you're familiar with where you could be like oh it's doing this i'll bet there's too much nickel in there i'll bet they sent us a bad batch of alloy and there's a hard spot there's too much zinc or whatever if you can look at them and see all that we're doing is moving around molecules we're moving around elements we're we're, we're just changing i think that's such a hard concept to think of welding like i'm going to heat up all these atoms and they'll start moving. They'll just, you know, just like anything else, like expanding air in a balloon, I'm going to get all of this material moving, changing it from a solid to kind of a liquid for a bit. It'll fuse together a metal lake between the two of them, and then I'll cool it, and they'll be together forever. They'll both be, they'll be joined metal. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that neat? It's crazy. It's just weird that we've ever figured out how to do that and that we achieve temperatures high enough to do it and point precision so that we're not like, oh yeah, we burned up this whole sheet of metal because how on earth do you get it hot just right here? Yeah. The welding department, I go back there and watch those guys for a while and they'll heat up things in ovens to get the whole part hot for the type, the specific type of welding they do back there. Uh, on one of the space shuttle experiments, they managed to weld steel to aluminum. Yeah, I, um, <laughs> I, I have a, a, a relative who was a, a deep sea underwater welder, and that whole world is is just incredible. The the way they like breathe helium when they're that low, they need that pressure. So that exhaust, that like 
supercharging them with helium and they come up these big burly types that are you know hey everybody i finished it welding down there at the bottom they're <laughs> doing all these gigantic <laughs> they can't see anything they can only see via their welding apparatus so they, yeah. they're just in total darkness feeling it out and then all right here i go and just knowing it through the feel through their metallurgical skills and that that humans have figured that out how to drop people down and march them across the ocean floor and weld underwater it's it's crazy yeah i just saw stuff is so neat you know and then i'll go back like i have a maple tree uh a couple of maple trees in my lawn and they drop branches. So I decided, huh, all this wood keeps hitting the ground. I'm not just going to burn it. So we got into making wooden spoons. Yeah. And then real quick, you figure out how to talk to the wood <laughs> and it, it's grown with a grain and it wants to be a specific shape. And you, if you fight it, your spoon's going to be weak or you can go with the way it wants to go and you'll have yourself a wonderful spoon. That's such a good way to put it. And I, and you have children and I think teaching we can all look back at the things we've learned and go, oh, why didn't I learn it that way? My grandfather worked with wood. My dad's really good with materials. But I don't remember ever it really being explained to me in such like from a chemistry sort of point of view that everything is fibers and the material is structured in this way. We want to we convince this material to behave this way. We want to trim a little bit off so it'll bend a little. We can take wood and we can soak it and talk those fibers into loosening up a bit and then we can wrap them around a pole and cinch them there until they dry and it'll now be a rounded thing that we've just talked those elements into being is that horse riding too (laughs) you have to convince the horse that the horse wanted to go there i think everything in life is to some degree that like i just had this guy dan french on talking about rhetoric and you're trying to engage someone in a way that makes sense to benefit Ideally, both of you. So like a zero-sum thing. But with a horse, there's kind of a a net positive, I suppose. It's probably a zero-sum in that the horse is having to exercise and you're getting carried for free and therefore it's a loss to the horse and a gain for you. But, you know, it gets out in the world and it gets to be helpful. And maybe that's a way the horse would be like, "Uh, dude, I want to be hanging out with my friends without a saddle on me. So this is always (laughs) a negative for me. But... Yeah, you're kind of you're kind of coercing and convincing any animal. You know, you're you're if you have cats that you don't want to run out every time you open the door, that's kind of the same as as materials. You're 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 saying, "All right, what do you want to be? What do you want to do? And how can I interact with you in a way that doesn't make it seem like I'm just forcing you to stay in?" Or the mail comes and I got to like kick you back in the door. Don't you sneak out. I see people doing that and I'm like, "This would not be great." woodworking you would just be there like hammering square pegs into round holes over and over and like this will work you got to figure out how they sync up machining plastics can be that way because you'll start you want the sharp 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 as you can and then as you're trying to cut it it just tries to move away from the cutting tip so then as the cutting tip passes by, it just moves right back where you were. <laughs> so you want to take off 50,000, you set it to take off 75. <laughs> Make a pass and, but, oh, look at that. It only actually took off 50. <laughs> yeah, those marginal things where you're guessing, where you're, okay, I think I have to, I have to swing this harder, throw this far because it's only going to go, like when you're fly fishing into the wind, you're, right. you're just you're doing something that's so different than what you want to be doing and going, Oh weird. It landed there. Cause you, maybe you can't feel the breeze above the canopy of the trees or something or the bushes you're near. So you're, you're kind of operating with these factors that you don't see or feel, but they're definitely influencing what you're doing. So then having to guess and approximate like, you know, I go this far or throw this hard. That would be tough with uh, when money's on the line, when you're trying to, Hey, get us these pipes or whatever you're, machining with plastic and you turn them back like yeah it it didn't work at all yeah (laughs) yeah yeah we're making some really neat stuff right now for a company that make uh like when they want to test a car suspension they need to replicate fifty thousand miles of suspension work so they just put it on this big fixture and just jiggle the car yeah nonstop. you know and we're making parts for that company that makes all those fixtures or we want to test a building for how it holds up to earthquakes so they build a really big fixture and bolt a house to it, 
and shake it to replicate an earthquake. <laughs> it just feels like humans know all this stuff. Not everyone. Maybe that's what's so discouraging when you think of humanity and the masses and just being content with just kind of getting up and going to a job that doesn't ask a lot of you, doesn't ask you to think or work your way through a problem-solving kind of... I don't know where it became such a thing to... We watched the first episode of the show Fargo a while ago because, you know, years ago people were talking about how great it was. And one of the elements is a, a, a gentleman who's asked by his wife to fix a washing machine and to kind of illustrate that he's not a man's man. He can't do it. And I feel like, I mean, nowadays, you know, with YouTube and everything, it's a different time. So everyone just needs to have that ability. Do I have the ability to to believe that I can learn how to do this thing with someone else giving me all of the thoughts. All of the problem solving can come from someone else. Hey, have you ever wanted to do this? You've come to the right video. And I kind of miss that sitting there looking at it like, I do want to do that. How in the <laughs> hell would I do it? How would I make this fit into there? Because when you think of those things, that's such a great, I don't know what it does. It helps your confidence. It just helps you as a person feel like, I bet I can figure out other stuff. But everybody can do something that machines to this day struggle with. And that is, if I toss a ball to a six-year-old, he can pretty, pretty, pretty often just catch a ball. Yeah. Or you think about that speed and trajectory, a baseball player out in the outfield and the guy at home plate hits the ball and judging the speed and the arc and anticipating its landing point and getting yourself to that point where it's going to hit the, all those mathematical uh, calculations that have to go in to simply catch a ball and computers and robotics still to this day having a, a horrible struggle with that. I mean, we were so impressed. Wow, Elon Musk managed to get a rocket that landed on its own feet. <laughs> I can drop a cat and do that. <laughs> yeah, I remember that occurred. That con that notion occurred to me. I took dynamics in college. And I took statics, and that was, you know, interesting. I had taken physics. The idea that I'm setting this box on this ramp, and it's going to slide down, and a coefficient of friction and weight. Uh, we can work out some equations for the forces and the speed that this may achieve, et cetera, the force that it would impact you with if you're standing at the bottom of this ramp. Those all make intuitive sense, I think, to most people. But the first time you learn that, that, hey, this box just slid down this ramp, who could have guessed that? And then you could show them a book and be like, this book could tell you exactly how fast that box was going to go based on the coefficient of this board that it was on. How fascinating is that? And those are the people that maybe had a difficult time during this pandemic getting their heads around very basic science. Because the idea that science and math could predict very accurately exactly what the world is, it's still so nice to say, no way, it can't figure out on a breezy day exactly where that baseball off that bat is going to go. And then you take dynamics and you're like, oh, exactly that. That It's talking about the force of drag in the air and then gravity on the ball plus the rotational spin of the ball and that a human being can hear it, see maybe a millisecond of it off the bat and turn head down and just start running going, I think it's going to be over here. Yeah. Incredible. And not even know they're doing all of these calculations. It's just automatic. <laughs> yeah. We're born with these things in our heads to go like, I understand the most advanced dynamics that have ever existed. We, we can't delve into it any further than that basic knowledge. <laughs> we can unravel it and go, oh, that's the math of what's already in my head. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I want to I get more into uh, how you got into these parts of the world uh, beyond just like machining, et cetera, but your various interests and where you live and motorcycles and so on. Uh, how about we take a little break and then we'll pick up there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I hope you're enjoying it. Come back next week for part two. Fascinating character that Lee Bruns. It gets a little emotional next week. It gets a little more personal. I really enjoyed the chat thoroughly and there's some stuff at the end even i may put on patreon but we'll see how that goes um but i mentioned people over time that i've gotten to know like stephen yates penelope club gene hosbot these are people that are, were early like professor blastoff listeners that just um reached out or got in touch and just expressed like hey i like what you do and i do interesting things as well 
It's a world full of interesting people. Yoichi Shiga, his name comes up on this show from time to time. If you listen to this show and you just like quietly listening, that's fine. But if you have an interest or a topic or a skill or a hobby that you think might be valuable, reach out. Clearly, I'm amenable to that, and I will likely want to chat with you. So if that scares you off, that's understandable. But uh, thanks to those of you who do reach out, support the show. Our latest Patreon member, Hotter Water, that's the name publicly placed. There's a a human name behind it that's more uh, traditional, but Hotter Water, $10 tier. That really helps the show. I can't say thank you enough. And you'll be getting a hand screen printed poster in the mail if you have not already received it uh, of the Space Cave that I drew and made. You can get those at thespacecave.com as well if you don't want to sign up for a monthly thing. You can also support the show just by purchasing some merchandise, which might be a nice holiday treat as we are now into the holiday season. But thanks to Hotter Water, thanks to all of you who do support the show monthly. It does help with... Um, all the stuff I always mention, tech, web hosting, etc., beer, music, helps, and eventually maybe we'll pay Dan. I don't know. We'll see. I'd like to get there and, and slowly grow the amount of people who do support the show. So if you're thinking about it, and if you like a show that has no ads, maybe you'll, you'll think of contributing a little to this, because this show is made possible entirely by contributions from listeners just like you. And I sincerely appreciate it. Um, check out Big Nothingness. No tour dates anytime soon, so we'll just be living here for a while. I hope you're enjoying it. If you have thoughts or comments, you can message pings at thespacecave.com, and I'll get back to you when I can, or davidhuntsberger.com. But anyway, thank you for listening. Let's get out of here. This is a song by Katie Tupin. If you don't like it, you've just come to the wrong place, because this is great. I hope it makes your day and your week better. It's called Astronaut. Thanks for stopping by the Space Cave.